0: Interrupting our progress through the Gospel of Matthew for two uh, Lord's Days as we think of uh, Advent and Christmas, and I'm drawing our attention to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 this morning, reading to verse 38. This is the famous Annunciation that has been painted by so many of the great painters of the world, and has fixed its place or fixed itself in the imagination of God's people from time immemorial. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. The sixth month refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy mentioned just before. Now, the word angel, as you know, means messenger. In some places in the Bible, it's hard to tell which meaning is meant, not here. But in any case, this is the second message the archangel Gabriel has been dispatched from heaven to bring in connection with the Messiah's coming. The first, of course, already narrated in Luke chapter 1, concerned the birth of the Savior's forerunner, John the Baptist. No doubt this was a very great honor for Gabriel. And Luke adds a town in Galilee after Nazareth. That's for the benefit of his Gentile readers who would never have heard of such an insignificant village as Nazareth and would have had no idea whatsoever where it was located. Its insignificance, which would later be charged against the Lord by his enemies, is surely one of the first parts of his humiliation. For our sins, that the King of Kings' hometown should not be Jerusalem, the capital, not Rome, the center of the world, but some no account village in Galilee, a backwater region of Palestine, which was itself a backwater of the imperial world. So, Gabriel, God sent Gabriel to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name. Was Mary pledged to be married? This betrothal or engagement was regarded as a definite promise of faithfulness to one another. It was regarded as equally binding as a marriage, the girl having the same legal position as a wife. That's why we read in Matthew, or just read in Matthew chapter 1, that Joseph, when he discovered that Mary was pregnant, decided to divorce her. It would be divorce to end this uh, arrangement, even though it was betrothal. This stage often lasted for as much as a year, during which, as was the case here, the couple did not yet live together. That Joseph is from the tribe of David is, of course, extraordinarily important in identifying his son, even if not his biological issue, his son in every legal sense as the Messiah, the long-promised heir of David's throne. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, also you will see the Lord's genealogy is traced back through Joseph uh, to David. There is no clear evidence that Mary descended from the house of David. She may have, but the point is of no importance to the narrative because lineage was always traced through the father, not the mother. The angel went to her... And said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, Roman Catholics, following the translation in the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, render Gabriel's greeting as Hail Mary full of grace or full of favor, as if the archangel meant that Mary had so much grace, she would be able to confer some of it on others. She had, as it were, grace to spare Rather, what is meant is that she had received great favor from the Lord. That's the clear meaning of the words, and no one disputes that today. The late Raymond Brown, a Roman Catholic scholar of some considerable reputation, published a few years ago a study entitled The Birth of the Messiah, an elaborate scholarly examination of the birth narratives in both Matthew and Luke. Brown is a Roman Catholic, but he treats the texts in a modern, critical fashion, sometimes in far too modern and far too critical a fashion. But one of the casualties he freely admits in his study is the traditional Catholic understanding of these texts concerning Mary. He says at one point, "'As a Roman Catholic myself,' I share their faith and their devotion to Mary, but it is my firm contention that one should not attempt to read later Marian sensibilities and issues back into the New Testament. I see no reason why a Catholic's understanding of what Matthew and Luke meant in their infancy narratives should be different from a Protestant's, which, of course, is simply a way of saying that the New Testament uh, texts themselves do not support the Roman Catholic view of Mary. Some Greek manuscripts of verse 28... Have blessed are you among women as an addition after the Lord is with you. And that reading made it into the Latin Bible. And you will recognize it as the text of the Ave Maria, the prayer recited by Roman Catholics. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The textual evidence pretty strongly suggests that it was a scribal insertion, taken from verse 42 and not part of the original form of verse 28. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek transliteration, of the shortened form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Its etymology can produce the meaning Yahweh helps or Yahweh saves, but the popular understanding of the meaning of the name among the Jews of that time was Yahweh saves. Philo, the Hellenistic, that is Greek uh, speaking and writing, uh, the Hellenistic Jewish philosopher who was born before the Lord Jesus and died after him, wrote Jesus, now he's of course meaning Joshua, but it's the same word. Jesus is interpreted salvation of the Lord. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end, which is all to say he will be the Messiah. No Jew in those days would miss the implication of those words. This baby will be the long-promised heir to David's throne, which is to say he will be the Messiah, the Anointed One. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Mary's expression is not of doubt, but of wonder. She clearly had gathered from Gabriel's words that the child is to be given her before her marriage to Joseph is consummated. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, Uh, put it beautifully. It became not God to have any mother but a maid, and it became not a maid to have any son but God. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now we'll be called... That's a, that's a Hebraism as well. Calling brings to expression what is. What is meant is that he will be the Son of God. Not just that he'll be called the Son of God, he will be the Son of God. The virginal conception doesn't create the divine nature of uh, Jesus, the Son of God, of course. God the Son was eternal, but the human nature is what is in view here. That which was conceived in Mary's womb, that will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. The reference to Elizabeth demonstrates the fact that what God is proposing to do for Mary and in and through Mary, miraculous though it may be, is certainly not beyond his power, as Elizabeth's case demonstrates. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered, May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Our Heavenly Father, we have before us a text often read at Christmas time and very familiar to us. We pray that you would use it anew and afresh in our hearts and minds to reveal great things concerning yourself and to stir our hearts to inward praise and love, to an ever-deepening faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. On this narrative of the Annunciation, the French commentator Godet wrote, What dignity, what purity, what simplicity, what delicacy in all of this dialogue. Not a word too many, not one too few. Such a narrative could not arise in any other sphere than the one in which the event itself took place. Well said, and you have only to compare the apocryphal Gospels to see how differently such stories are written when they are made up. What I want us to consider from this text this morning, however, is not its historical account of the onset of the Incarnation, so much as its revelation of God, and in particular of the triune God. Perhaps you noticed that all three persons of the Godhead made their appearance at this supreme turning point of human history. The references to God in verse 26 and again in verse 30 and to Lord God in verse 32 certainly refer to God the Father, the first person of the triune God. That's clear enough from the context. Were they references to God the Son and the names God and Lord may be used and are specifically used many times of Jesus Christ, God the Son, in the New Testament. But were these references here references to God the Son, we would have to read the text as meaning that God the Son gave himself the throne of his father David, which is certainly not suggested by the language. What is more, the rest of the Bible would be emphatically against us in that interpretation. It is the Father who gives this throne to His Son. So we have the Father, the first person here. But we also have the Son, the incarnate Son, the Son now in human nature to be sure, but God the Son nonetheless. As the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament will make unmistakably clear, it was no one less than God the Son, the second person of the triune God, who came into the world and took to himself a human nature in the womb of his virgin mother. But we also have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. When asked by Mary how she could conceive a child not having known a man, Gabriel replies that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and with his mighty and divine power perform this miracle within her. So we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together accomplishing this great marvel by which the salvation of the world is brought to pass. And what is more, we have the persons in their familiar roles. I accept that there is much mystery here and that we are not to pry into things that are neither revealed nor perhaps revealable. But from many other texts in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, we are accustomed to thinking of the Father as the one who originates the action, whose plan and counsel uh, are the source of all things. We are accustomed to think of the Son as the one who carries out the Father's will and plan in its arrangement and execution. And we are accustomed to think of the Holy Spirit as the one whose energy and efficacy actually brings to pass the Father's plan in the Son's accomplishment of that plan and brings it to its completion and its fulfillment. Putting it more simply, the Father chooses a people for salvation and provides them a Redeemer in His Son. The Son comes, as he often said, to do the will of his Father in heaven, to accomplish the work of redemption. And he has helped every step of the way by the Holy Spirit, who enables the Son, the God-man now, to accomplish his work. From the conception of his human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary, to his resurrection from the dead, the work of the Holy Spirit, and then onward to open hearts all over the world to receive the Son of God as the Savior from sin and death. Christian theologians have been careful to say from virtually the very beginning of Christian reflection on the deep mystery of the Trinity, that the external works of God are indivisible or undivided. All that the persons of the Godhead do, they do together. There is a single will, there is a single purpose, and so there is a single action, even if the persons fulfill different roles. And so the Father can be called the creator of the world, and is. The Son can be called the creator of the world, and is. And the Holy Spirit can be called the creator of the world, and is in the Bible. And each can also be called our Savior, each in his own way perhaps, But the works of God are the works of the Godhead together. And so it was as well in the redemption of the people of God and in the beginning of that great work of redemption. Nevertheless, there is a distinction drawn between the persons and their roles, and we find that distinction here, much as much must remain a great mystery. It was not the Father whose powerful work it was to conceive in the womb of the Virgin Mary the human nature of God the Son. It was not the Holy Spirit who took upon himself a human nature and became the Messiah. We Christians today don't think nearly so often or as deeply as we should, and as Christians once did about the triune God, about the triunity of the one living and true God, which lies in more ways than we might immediately recognize at the bottom of everything we are as human beings, everything we hope for, everything we believe as Christians. There was a time when Christians did not take this so much for granted because it was a doctrine that was under attack even in the church. One of the great 4th century theologians was Gregory of Nyssa, who with his older brother Basil, known in church history as Basil of Caesarea, and their friend Gregory Nazianzus formed the trio that in the history of Christian theology is known as the Cappadocian Fathers. They are so called because they all three hailed from Cappadocia, a Roman province in Asia Minor, south of the Black Sea. When Gregory of Nyssa moved to take up ministry in Constantinople in the later 4th century, a city that was then roiled with controversies about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the relations between them and the nature of the triune God. He said you couldn't stand on a street corner. You couldn't buy something in the market without hearing people debate the Trinity. Garment sellers, money changers, food vendors, they're all at it. If you ask for change, they philosophize for you about generate and ingenerate natures. If you inquire about the price of a loaf of bread, the answer is that the Father is greater and the Son is inferior. Nowadays, we do not expect when we are at the mall doing our Christmas shopping that we will overhear an argument in which one is asserting the three persons and the other the unity of God. Still less when we actually pay for our purchase, do we expect to get a dissertation on the relations between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit within the Godhead? Among the things that people know nowadays, even Christian people know nowadays, we do not so often find the deep discussions that have taken place through the ages concerning the triple personality of the one living and true God. But we should. We certainly should, for the nature of God as triune lies at the bottom of everything we know of human life and certainly at the bottom of the good news of salvation. One of the objections that philosophy has sometimes brought against the biblical doctrine of creation, that is, the biblical teaching that all that is was at some point created out of nothing by the living God, One of the objections philosophy has brought to that is that there is a great difficulty of conceiving of a personal subject, that is God, existing for eternity past, eternity past, without an object, that is someone or something distinct from himself. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, creating a universe, God and nothing, forever and ever, and then suddenly, God and something else. But that's a much greater problem if you have a Unitarian conception of God. The doctrine of the Trinity largely erases that philosophical objection to creation. The fact is, subject and object and interpersonal relationship exist within the Godhead itself. God was not bereft Of anything before he made the universe, he was content in the fellowship of his own triune nature, the persons loving and being loved within the unity of God. And what of human life and human experience as everyone knows it, understands it, experiences it, and encounters it? We are persons, centers of self-consciousness, who exist and live in relation to other persons and other things, and cannot help but do so. The origin of personality is itself an insoluble problem, apart from the personal God, a God who himself exists in the relationship of three persons, who gives his own nature and character to those he has created in his own image. One of the most desperate gambles of those who defend evolution as an explanation of human origins, is that we will not notice that they are claiming nothing less than that the personal can arise out of the impersonal and the self-conscious arise out of the unconscious. The Trinity is why human life is what it is, why we all encounter it and experience it as we do. We live our lives as persons in relation. When one child is raised in a loving, secure, and stable home, and another is raised in an abusive and troubled home, there is not in either case some core identity to those children, who and what they are, that is unaffected by the relationships that shape them. Our relationships are not an add-on they are at the core of who and what we are. That's why, for example, Tom Hanks did not grow into something better, purer, richer, deeper in the movie Castaway. For he lives his years on a deserted island alone. His only relationship is with a volleyball to which he talks, if you've seen that film. The time during which, and it's very obvious in the film, however unwitting it may have been to the screenwriter or the director, the time during which he is marooned is an interlude in his life, because he is alone. Robinson Crusoe, on the other hand, lives, leaves his island after many more years on it alone, leaves his island a different and a far better man because of two relationships that he formed and cultivated and enjoyed during his lonely exile. The first with God himself, and the second with Friday. We've been made by a God of persons, to be persons, and to live as persons. Human life was never intended to be anything else but the profoundest concourse of persons. That's why our relationships so profoundly determine our happiness and our fruitfulness as human beings. To have loving, holy, faithful, fruitful relationships is to be a human being in the fullest sense. To be a human being after the model of God himself, who is three persons who live in a perfect harmony of love and united purpose and action. And why? Why should this be? Why should we be as we are? Why should human life be as it is? Because God himself is and lives in personal relationship. It is his nature as the triune God. So the nature he has imparted to those who were made in his image. And of course, chief among the personal relationships, the I-thou relationships of human life is the relationship with God himself a personal relationship in the profoundest sense. It can be likened and often is in the Bible to the relationship between a father and his children, love, submission, dependence, reliance, between a bridegroom and his bride, emotional attachment, passion, delight, between a king and his subjects, reverence, obedience, and service. All of this lies at the heart and the center of the Christian understanding, the biblical presentation of salvation. What is offered, finally, is nothing less than the personal knowledge of and a relationship with God. Like, if different in many ways, and to a great degree, still like the relationship between the Father and the Son, the Son and the Spirit, And the Spirit and the Father. What, after all, is so surprising that a God of fellowship, a God whose very life and being is fellowship, should make us for fellowship with Himself? It's deeply interesting and revealing that cut off from this strongly personal element that is unique to Christianity with its doctrine of the triple personality of the one living and true God, even the other great monotheistic faiths of the world lose much of this personal element and understanding. It has been pointed, pointed out, for example, that what is striking about the Mishnah and the Talmud, the great repositories of Jewish biblical and legal interpretation, is how little they say about God. Even Jewish mysticism, which to some extent is a compensation for the dryness of the Jewish legal tradition, does not as a rule speak of that union and communion with God, which is the main feature of the Christian gospel. Classical Judaism holds to a personal God, how could it not, originating as it does in the scriptures of the Old Testament, but it pays much more attention to God's holiness His otherness, the sanctity of God's name, and so subsequently to the various means by which his people might maintain themselves in holiness before him. It pays relatively little attention to the possibility of knowing this high and exalted God personally, person to person, and to live in personal fellowship with him. Islam, as we know, is a defiantly monotheistic faith like Christianity and Judaism with roots in both of them. But it is precisely the personal character of God that largely disappears in Islam. Allah is remote, removed from mankind. As in much of Judaism, the Islamic experience of the mystical life, of spiritual experience, is confined to the world of demons and angels. No direct contact with God. Is possible. The notion of God stooping to relate to human beings as person to person is a concept so foreign to Islam as to be blasphemous. How different our faith as Christians. God stoops down to be known to us as our friend. He comes into our world and shares our life. He makes common cause with us. He takes upon himself our burdens and suffers our wounds, and he offers himself to us as father and friend and bridegroom, the most personal relationships of all of life. Where does this come from? Whence comes this stunning possibility of knowing the living, eternal, and almighty God person to person of being taken up into his own personal life and relating to him in the mental and spiritual and physical nature of our own humanity? Well, it comes from God himself. It comes from what God is and what he is like. It is all a reflection of his own nature. It comes from the fact that God himself is a being of three persons who love one another and serve one another and conspire together to do the wonderful things. That God does. So much of this is mystery and must remain so for us. How the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit relate to one another, we will probably never know in but the dimmest way. But the fact of that inner relatedness in the divine life, the fact of the triple personality of the divine life, leaves its mark everywhere we look, within and without as human beings. It determines our life, as of course it would, we being made in the image of God. So then we return to the Christmas narrative here in Luke chapter 1 with its artless introduction of the three persons of the one God. Each person is introduced without comment or explanation, and only because of the revelation of the triune God and the rest of the New Testament, are we able to understand what we are being told here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, as always, working together to fulfill the divine purpose in the world. And deep mystery as it is, we're not speaking of three gods, but only one who exists in three persons. We remember Augustine's comment that he used such a term as person only So as not to say nothing at all. We hardly know what we mean when we confess the tri-unity of God. But clearly this is what the Bible teaches. There's no other way to summarize what it says about there being but one God on the one hand. And on the other what it says about the distinction of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How else can we possibly understand the many references, the many references to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we find in the New Testament, scattered as they are everywhere and related to everything in the revelation God makes to us in His Word? How else can we understand how it is that to each of these three persons are ascribed the attributes of God Himself? How else can we possibly understand what we're told of the relationship Between these three persons, how they speak to one another, do one another's will, are sent by one another, conspire together in creation and redemption, how they bring glory to one another in the life of mankind, and so on. How else can we understand that we as Christian believers are baptized into a single name, but that name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How else can we believe in Jesus Christ, whom we are taught in so many different ways, though being equal with God, did not consider that something to hold on to, but emptied himself, and became a a man in the world like other men, and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. How else could we believe in him as both God and man? And how else at the same time, Can we confess, as the Bible teaches us to do so emphatically and so often, that there is but one living and true God? It may be that it was not until the incarnation, not until the announcement of the coming of the Messiah, not until God the Son came into the world, that it became clear that God was, in fact, triune. There are anticipations of the multiple personalities that exist in the Godhead in the Old Testament. But it is not until the revelation of Jesus Christ that we learn that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That awaited the appearance of God the Son, Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwelled in bodily form. But among the things that were most assuredly revealed by the incarnation of God the Son, and so no accident that this revelation, biblically speaking, should come here at the very announcement of the appearance of God the Son in human form, was precisely that God exists in three persons. And knowing that is the key to all reality. Taking the Scriptures together, apart from God As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there would be no creation. There would be no universe, no mankind, no human beings such as we are ourselves. No human life as we know it. Certainly no salvation and eternal life for us. No everlasting happiness for human beings in the fellowship of God himself. It's not only that Christ has come into the world but that in coming He has revealed to us the secret of all reality, that God, the living God, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.